We're nearly at the end of term one. We're nearly there. Our series on discipleship. Has anyone memorized Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20 yet? I mean, I feel like by now, the amount of times. Would you mind turning this up just a little bit, Beck? Because we'll see whether my throat holds out or not. Uh, the, the amount of times that we've had it read by now, surely you all know it, right? Good stuff. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd uh, strengthen us for your work this evening as we hear your word. Teach us how to be disciple makers. More than anything, Father, motivate us. Move our hearts to love, to care, that we might be as mothers and as fathers to those who we disciple. Father, we ask that tonight would be encouraging and enthusing and that we would move us and motivate us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're nearly at the end. Two weeks left on this great commission. The the command that Jesus gave to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you till the end of the age. And if you stop and reflect for a moment, we've covered the who, the what, the when, the why, the where and the how that happens. Pretty impressive, quite a lot. It happens, if you remember that summary, the four Ps, as people, people like us, people who are already disciples of Jesus, invest into other people's lives. We invest in prayer, prayerful dependence upon the Spirit of God, and as we proclaim God's Word to them in every situation, persevering step-by-step walking alongside them. Now, I don't know how you're feeling at the end of this term of discipleship speak, whether you're excited and enthused, whether you've started putting some of it into practice. I really hope you have. I really hope that by now many of you are in those discipling relationships. Remember, about four or five weeks ago, I got you to write down two names, the person you wanted to disciple and the person you wanted to be discipling you. But perhaps you're feeling a little bit daunted, a little bit overwhelmed, a little bit, well, this is a very big challenge, a little bit nervous, or even just plain confused. I really don't know. We've talked about it for so long that I just don't know what it is you expect me to do anymore. Where do I even start? Well, tonight, I want you to have a confidence boost. As we think through how we can turn this into a reality, the practical steps that we can take to get on with Jesus' business. And there's two ways to do it. Firstly, we're going to consider an example from Scripture. We're going to spend some time in that passage in 1 Thessalonians, seeing how it is that Paul models for us these discipling relationships. But then also to just break the process down into sort of bite-sized chunks. What is it that I can do next in this discipling relationship? And first, we're going to talk about this practical example from Scripture. So you'll find it handy to have a Bible uh, somewhere where you can see it and open to 1 Thessalonians. As we see, what is it that a good discipling relationship look like? looks like? Now, this bloke, Paul, he had personally led these Christians in Thessalonica to Christ. He had been the one who preached the gospel to them in the first place, and then he hung around with them for a while. He stayed there to help nurture them in their faith. It's an astonishing story of their conversion. The whole world changed because of the result of these Christians. They became world famous for how they had given up their false religions and worldly ambitions, of how they had turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was truly an amazing story. And so then as we come to chapter 2, Paul very helpfully kind of reflects back on what his relationship was like with them. 
It's brilliant and it's so helpful because it shows that it's not about having a particular program or technique. It's not like you have to have done this course in order to be able to be a disciple maker. It's about the kind of relationship, having the right motives and the right manner. Having the right motives and the right manner. Let's talk about motives first. Let's talk about the heart. Let's talk about the thing that's going to drive us to want to do this. You can be the best trained person in the world but if you're not rightly motivated, it's all for nothing. If you have the wrong, in fact, if you have the wrong motive, you're going to end up harming people rather than benefiting them, or you'll just give up when it's tough. All right, let's read again. One Thessalonians two verse one. He says, "All right, here's a bunch of motives all caught up in here. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know." But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of severe suffering. Okay, so he'd just come from another place where they'd gotten beaten up for telling people about Jesus. They came to Thessalonica and still preached the gospel to them. What motivated them? Verse 3, the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, nor from you or anyone else. There's a whole bunch of possible motives that he lists here. Uh, Some of them are bad. In fact, I want to show you three wrong ones first, just to make sure that we're not doing it wrongly before we then come to the right motivation. The first wrong motive is there in verse 4. And I think the most dangerous one, trying to please people. On the contrary, he says, we are not trying to please men. If you just want people to be happy with you, if you just want people to like you, if you want people to think that you're a great guy and that, yeah, I want to hang out with him and it's just brilliant, what's going to happen the first time that you have to have a hard conversation with somebody? You have to point out their sin. You have to show them how they aren't serving. You have to tell them that they are, if they're not a Christian, a sinner in the hands of an angry God, that they're destined for destruction and they need the Lord Jesus to be saved. What's going to happen the first time you have that conversation with them? They'll be like, who are you? You're the nice guy that I hang out with that I really like and that we're just chill and it's cool and it's fun and now you're telling me this weird stuff? No, get lost. Or even worse, they're going to be like, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to be a friend anymore. Paul wasn't about trying to give people warm fuzzies. He wasn't trying to please them. He wasn't trying to please other people. You could do ministry. You could be a disciple maker because you want to please others. Not the person that you are discipling, but other people. I really want my church leader to think really good of me. right? I've I've been guilted into doing this. So if I go and do it, it'll make them happy. I really want people to look up to me in church as someone who's just, yeah, they are really good. They're on fire, aren't they? Amazing. Look at that great ministry that they're doing with these particular people. No one else could have discipled them. Look at them. Right? It's very tempting. Very tempting. But it's wrong. Not trying to please people. Second wrong motive, verse 5. He says, we didn't use flattery. We don't do it out of a desire to butter people up. He wasn't from Paul's and trying to give them an ego trip, trying to manipulate them by saying, well, you guys are so wonderful. God is really lucky to have you on his side. You know, you ever met someone like that who's just a really 
they're really good at kind of massaging your ego to get you to do what they want. You ever met someone like that? Paul wasn't like that. When it comes to making disciples, flattery really is not going to get you anywhere. Now, some people like it. Some people are going to enjoy the flattery. But as soon as it gets hard, you're going to stop. It's not going to be of any use. First wrong motive, trying to please people. Second wrong motive, out of a desire to flatter and to build up someone's ego. Third wrong motive, again, verse 5. He says, we didn't put on a mask to cover up greed. You could get into the business of making disciples as a way of benefiting financially. It's very possible. Converts, new Christians, are often very generous and very trusting of those people who've discipled them. They are easy to exploit. All sorts of people do. I mean, think for a moment, just think of the Church of Scientology, right? This isn't a church that's making disciples of Jesus. Let's just be very clear about that for a moment. They're making disciples of L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, you, you know the history of Scientology, right? L. Ron Hubbard basically made a bet with someone to say, I bet you I can make a religion that'll become a global religion. I can just invent stuff and people are going to fall for it. And he did. He invented the alien mothership and it's just the whole thing is weird. I don't know how people buy it. But if you're a part of the Church of Scientology, then every time you need help identifying a problem, it costs you thousands. And for some reason, it gets more expensive the higher up in the levels that you go. Wow, what a surprise. Such that the church is rolling in cash. Well, there was, there was a Christian songwriter a few years ago who pretended to have cancer. He pretended for two years that he was fighting a cancer battle as a way of increasing his sales. The guy's now in jail for fraud. I mean, you just go... But you know what? Let's, let's just bring it closer to home because it is so possible in our context, to be motivated by greed. In particular, as a minister in the Anglican Church, we get paid really well. The, 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 um, the minimum stipend, as the, the minimum wage for a minister is set by the synod. It's set by the, the diocese. Right? We as a church haven't said we want to pay our ministers this much, except to say we're going to pay them the minimum. But the minimum is really generous. You could very easily go and I'm going to go to ministry because I'm going to make a ton of cash. And in fact, it's not, well, it's really quite sad that the parishes that choose to pay their ministers more than the minimum, there are some parishes that will pay like 150, 200% of, of the minimum wage. It's, it's kind of strange that the ministers in those churches tend to stay kind of longer than ministers in other churches. Now, I don't want to badmouth them, right? I'm not going to, I want to speak ill of my brothers in Christ. Maybe they just do an amazing ministry and they've got to stick around. But it's a danger for us. It's not just out there. We're not throwing stones at other people. Greed is just as present among us. Right, three wrong motives. Don't try and please people. Don't do it out of a desire to flatter. Don't do it out of greed. So what's the right motive then? Well, the right motivation, verse 4. We speak of those as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying, he says, to please men, but to please God. Is that you? If I'll be honest, I so often can look in the mirror and I could not honestly say, today I'm doing what I'm doing because I want to put a smile on God's face. It's so often that I get up and I do what I'm doing, well, maybe for some of these reasons, I can find an excuse and a reason to do things, but it doesn't even cross my mind so often. 
tell what I really, really want today is to please God. I want to go and make disciples of Jesus because that will make him happy. And friends, this is the only motivation you can have, which will mean that you are really intentionally seek to help other people follow Christ. Which will give you courage to say what needs to be said, which will sustain you when it gets hard. The reason that will always be there. Do you know, you and I have been entrusted by God himself with the greatest treasure in the world. You have been entrusted by God with the greatest treasure in... You might not feel like it, right? You might, you might feel a bit weak. You're like a clay pot, right? Uh, my, my wife, Edwina, is an art teacher and uh, she has at various points in her life done pottery herself and occasionally done it with some of her students. And uh, let's just say that some of the pieces, particularly the badly made ones, are supremely fragile. You just kind of flick it and falls apart, right? And ha, that student's going to be... Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, right, it's just... We may well be jars of clay. We may well be weak and fragile and breakable and just feel like we are nothing. But inside the jar, God has placed the most precious thing in the world. The gospel, the word that saves, the message that is necessary. There is no other way that people can be saved and know God and escape the judgment to come other than Jesus. And you have that inside of you. You know that it's here and it's here. Do you want to please God? Do you want to know that God is looking down at you with a big fat smile on his face and joy in his heart? That at the end, when we get there, he will look and say, Oh, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Then if you do that, what you will do is you will work so hard to grow as a disciple yourself so that you can honor him more and more as the number one in your life. And you will go and help others be disciples. So that he is first, not just in your life, but in everyone's life. That's what we want. The greatest thing you could give them. It's the greatest thing that you can do for God's glory and God's honor. We've got to be motivated rightly. The desire to please God. Knowing that we've been entrusted by him with the gospel. Right, so that was, the, that was the motive, that was why Paul endured and suffered and got there and preached and stayed and built them up. How did he do it? What was the manner? What does a good discipling relationship look like? And Paul uses really two pictures, two images, two metaphors. He says he was like a good mum and a good dad to them. He was both. All right, Paul was like a good mum. Pick it up halfway through verse 6. He says, as apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her children. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you'd become dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. Now, not many of us have been a mum. There are a bunch of us who have. I haven't. I've never been a mum. But I've seen a few. I've known my own. I have a wife who is now a mother to three little children. And there's at least three ways here that Paul kind of highlights how he was like a good mum with her little children. First, he says he was gentle and caring with them. 
You watch a mum with a newborn baby. I mean, you watch a mum with their firstborn baby, and they're kind of awkward. They're like, how do I hold this thing? It's like, is it going to break? Actually, that was me. I was like, can I, can I break this? If I hold it wrong, does it break? Uh, <laughs> when Sophia, my eldest, was born, we had a male midwife. I asked him what he's called, and he's like, just midwife. I'm like, oh, really? Okay, sure, whatever. And he came in one day, and he had to bathe two babies at once. And he just grabbed one by the chest, like upside down, like this, whoop, like a football. And he comes and grabs the other one, whoop, and he just walks out with his two babies, like, hanging there. And I'm like, oh, they don't break. Oh, that's brilliant. I can do that too. Hey, happy days, right? But you watch a mum with a newborn little baby, and they're just gentle and tender and caring with them. Feeding and soothing and burping and cuddling. New life is fragile. Whether it's that little baby, whether it's the newborn Christian, whether it's the tiny little plant that's just sprouted and is beginning, they need tender, loving care. Are you the sort of person who just in general, in life, is gentle and caring? Are you the sort of person that friends know they can come to? And we'll find somebody to talk to, to get help from. A cup of tea, a listening ear. Someone who your neighbours know, they're going to come and find a smile and help if they need it. Would the people you know say that you treat them with love and kindness? Because if you can't do it with the people you already know, then it's just going to be hypocrisy if you just turn on this face all of a sudden with the new person you're trying to disciple. Like a mother, gentle and caring. Secondly, like a mother... In terms of the relational connection and involvement. Paul says he's delighted not only to share the gospel with them, but his whole life. They'd become so dear to him that he just he just got involved and enmeshed. I mean, just think about mums, right? How much they're involved in the life of their kids. Particularly if you're a stay-at-home mum, your life revolves around everything your children do. When they're little, they truly depend on you food clothing cleanliness right all that kind of stuff then they grow up and you're running around you're watching the school plays taking them to co-curricular activities talking to their friends and their friends parents and organizing parties and coming here just utterly involved in school life talking to teacher and what are you learning and how can i help and mums in this is a generalization right but mums in general are the ones that children do life with Paul didn't just dump the gospel on them and then leave. He didn't just go, now you know it, I'm out, right? He stayed and lived and they weren't targets. He was just like, I'm going to put another notch in my belt, a couple more converts, happy days, evangelism tally, stays high, still in the lead, right? No, I'm going to live with them, I'm going to share with them. He delighted to do life with them. Thirdly, like a mother, in how hard he worked. Being a mum, and I've I've now learnt this through my wife, right? It's like a normal job. You kind of clock off. You get to five o'clock, you're like, yep, I'm done, bunny off, home I go, forget about it. No, but you are a mum, it is a 24-7, 365 days a year. Maybe 364 because your hubby gives you one day a year off, right? That's that's about what you get. Paul was like that. I mean, he says, verse 9, Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order to not be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. He poured himself out so that he wouldn't burn. Being a mum, I'm just, just to give you an idea, right? You never clock off. You get to like 7.30, you put the kids to bed, you're finally just like, oh, I'm going to have some me time now. 
It's like, yes, it's going to be the best in the world because I'm going to do absolutely nothing. Right? I'm going to put my feet up. Yeah. And then you just see some kids spewing upstairs. And he's like, oh, right, and off you go. And, there's your, and it's just, that's, that's just the life. Paul, he was a tent maker by profession, right? So he worked his profession, did that so that he could, no one could be confused about his motives. And then once he knocked off from work, what did he do? He spent every minute he had left discipling them. He was there for them. Not to take from them. He was there to give them this priceless treasure. Even if it was at his own cost. How often do we try and weigh it up? Well, how much is this going to cost me? And I just mean money, but time, energy, emotional energy. Like, oh, is it worth it? Should I, shouldn't I keep it to myself? Maybe I can get something back out of it. He's just like, no, I'm going to give, I'm going to give, and I'm going to give. Like a mum. But he also says he was like a dad. Have a look at verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy and righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. You know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now, two ways in particular. He was like a dad. Firstly, he was like a dad in how he set the tone, how he lived out the example of being a Christian. It's interesting to note, again, generalizations, so there are differences, but often it works out that children, as they grow up, will say they believe whatever their mum says she believes, but they will do whatever it is that their father did. As your boy and girl children right if mum's the one who always went to church and said she was a christian and brought them all up through sunday school to know about jesus and but dad was like couldn't care less about god i'm watching the footy all day on sunday as children grow up you see exactly that repeats they say they believe they say they are christians and followers of jesus but you're never going to see them at church on a sunday the father's example is so powerful Right. What example did Paul set? Again, verse 10, you are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. He just lived out his faith. It's kind of obvious to say it, right? If you want to be a disciple maker, one of the ways in which you do it is just living out your faith and showing people how it is. Paul showed the real substantial differences that Jesus makes. He knew he was providing an example. He knew everyone's eyes would be on him. Just like everyone's eyes are on you. As soon as you make it known that you are a Christian, whether it's at work, whether it's at home, whether it's your neighbours on your street, you just they're going to be watching you. And they're going to be watching you for two reasons. They're going to be watching you to see if you stumble. People love nothing better than catching a Christian who's not perfect. Ah, oh, I thought you were a Christian. Ah! But strangely, they're also going to be watching you to see if what we claim is true. And that there is a good life to be found in Jesus. That there is joy and peace and hope and a love that flows through us. They're going to be watching their example. And certainly for baby Christians and those who are growing as disciples, we need to model for them what a mature Christian looks like. But I take it he was like a good dad also in a second way. Not just how he lived and modelled for them the Christian life, but also in how he spurred them on to keep going, to keep growing as Christians. Have a look at verse 11 again. You know how we dealt with each of you as a father with his own children, doing what? Encouraging, 
comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God. This isn't the harsh, distant, never-present dad. This is the one who has time for them and will speak into their lives. Not the dad who's so cranky and so caught up in his own stuff. He's like, just go away, Pff, I'm busy. No. I was chatting to a guy today, a fascinating guy. I totally misread him. I first started talking to him, I was like, man, you are awkward and you're going to be utterly boring and it's going to be a weird conversation. Uh, I got it completely wrong. The guy was fascinating. He works in the juvenile justice system as a case worker for the kids who are there, right? So these are kids who have usually been convicted of some sort of crime that's bad enough to put them through the system. Some of them go to prison. And his job is to work with the families and, and write reports, essentially, on what's going on in that family, on the situation for this child, on what could possibly be done to improve that child's situation fascinating job and he was sharing with me uh he's worked all over the place he's sharing with me um the the what happens in rich families because there's there's a couple of different groups of children who often go through the juvenile detention system there's the kids who live in really rough areas who kind of get in with gangs and they end up doing all sorts of dodgy stuff and then there's the group of kids who are part of really really wealthy families and you go, really? That, yeah, because what happens is the parents are so busy making all the money that they have that they have zero time for their children. Zero time. And so a kid gets into problem and instead of spending time with the kid, they just buy them out of the problem. I got cash. I can fix the problem. You're good again. Carry on how you were. And Paul, absolutely not like that. Dedicated to them. Like the good, the, the, the kind of the... The, the movie's dad, right, who's on the, the, the sidelines at the kids' soccer game, yeah, yeah, right, coaching little leagues or whatever it is, right, but who's teaching, who's training, who's constantly seeking to grow their child in all aspects of life. Paul's aim is to mould his kids into the greatest disciples of Jesus they could possibly be. In terms of Christian discipleship, it's the same. Encouraging, helping, growing, maturing, sometimes rebuking the other person to be the greatest servant of God they can be. Well, that's the manner. That's its character. Whether you're helping someone come to know Jesus or whether you're helping someone grow in maturity. You've got to be a good mum, gentle, caring, pouring your life into them, working really, really hard. It's being a good dad, setting the right example, encouraging, training. It's not one or the other. You've got to be both. And you know what? If you're sitting there thinking, man, that's going to take so much time and energy. Yes. Yes, it is going to take so much time and energy. This isn't easy, but it's also not a task that you complete, by the way. It's different to many other tasks in life. Don't think of disciple making as this one little job. I've just got to do it occasionally and I'm okay. Disciple making is our life. It's why we are still here and not in heaven yet. I'd much prefer to be in heaven. I don't know about you. I'd like to go home. It'll be nice there. We get to rest. We get to be with God. We get all the bad stuff can be gone. And we can go and be with Jesus. That'd be lovely. Why aren't we gone yet? Because God's left us here to make disciples. Between now and the time you die or Jesus returns, which could be anywhere from three seconds through to a good 50, 60, 70 years for some of us, that's what we're doing, making disciples. We make disciples of Jesus. Okay, so we've got the motive, we've got the manner, what about the method? Now, if you get those two right, if you get the motive and the manner right, the method kind of doesn't matter. 
to be perfectly honest with you. You get the motivation right, you get the manner right, and you just go for it, and it'll be good. But I want to share with you one kind of idea, one way of, of breaking it down into concrete steps so that you can now think about it and go, okay, what I really need to do next is this, and just have one little step rather than this big thing. Now, let me show you. <clears throat> is this on back? Have I got uh, is the, sli- the slides up? Give me the first one. Uh, and we'll, I'll show you a little picture. All right, uh, steps to make disciples, it says. Here's a little picture. Uh, it's a circle with a target in it and some arrows. Uh, it's a target, just to remind us, this is what we're aiming for, for people, right? It's like, we're going to put a target on that person. Poof, poof, poof. There is a reason to the little cross that kind of runs through it. And we start in the top right-hand corner. This might look familiar, by the way, because it looks an awful lot like that. Have you ever seen our logo? There's a reason for our logo. It's not Ninja Stars. We're not Ninja Church. Uh, however much it looks like Ninja Stars, it's just, it's just a, a, a designer's way of representing that, right? But this is much more obvious to see what it means. And the idea is that if you start at the top right, you kind of move people through this journey such that they then start to move other people through this journey. Now, I hope you've seen this before. This is part of our vision stuff. People start at the top right as complete outsiders to church, complete outsiders to you, not people we don't know, complete outsiders to Jesus. They don't necessarily know any Christians. And then you come into your life. could be anyone. Right, a new guy at work, a neighbour, you've just moved house. It could be the person you see on the train. It could be family that's moved next door. Maybe they're different culture, different religion. It doesn't matter, just an individual. Whoever they are, what they need is for Christians to engage with them. Right? Christians to engage. Excellent typing. And uh, they're, they're, they're all that bad. So it'll help you to remember them. Need Christians to engage with them, right? Someone to reach out and just get to know them and meet them and begin to create some sort of connection, some sort of friendship. Now, you want this to be intentional such that you're heading somewhere. Not that we make friends specifically because we have, just because we want to evangelize them and if that doesn't work, we're going to say goodbye and not be friends anymore, right? It's not, I'm not saying that, but at the same time, you'd be foolish not to be intentional about this. Here is an opportunity for a disciple, with Je- a disciple of Jesus, then get on with being a disciple-er of that person. Now really what you could do in Engage, here's five steps uh, stolen from Ken's seminar in February. Uh, if you want to go back and watch it, the video of that is in our Facebook members group. Five steps, it's not rocket science, right? Step one, have a personal conversation. I'm not talking about Christian stuff, just a personal conversation. More than, hi, how are you going? That's not a personal conversation. That's just being polite to an acquaintance or a stranger, right? Not just nodding and saying hi, but stop and have a chat. Introduce yourself. Hi, my name is... What's your name? What do you do on the weekends? Who's in your family? How long have you been here? Ah, oh, right, 57 years. Right, okay, good. I should have said hello earlier then. That's a bit awkward now, right? Like, it's just... doesn't matter. Have a personal conversation. I noticed you're wearing that T-shirt. Tell me about it. I saw you ride a motorbike. Wow, that's really cool. I doesn't matter. Share something with them. Step number two, let them know that you're a Christian. Somehow let them know. The easiest, easiest, easiest way is, to, is just ask them, what do you like doing on the weekends? <laughs> Hopefully they ask you back, 
You're like, oh, I really love going to church. Right, yes, boom, we're in, Christian, okay? It gets awkward the longer you leave it without letting them know. If you've been in a work situation for years now and nobody knows you're a Christian, it gets much harder to say to people, hey, there's this thing that shapes all of my life, but you guys weren't aware of it. <laughs> so it can't be shaping my life all that well. Uh, okay, right, sure, whatever, right? Just let them know you're a Christian. Someone who takes Jesus seriously. It's good to talk about the Bible. That's a really good thing. Not just I go to church, but use the name Jesus. Talk about the Bible. Step three, do something social outside your normal setting. Create another dimension of relationship. Right? For someone at work, go to drinks afterwards. Go for dinner. Go out for lunch. If it's your neighbor, have them over for a meal. Go out to the footy. Watch a movie together. Do something to start building a real friendship. Friends, friendship requires time and common experience. Start having, do something social outside your normal setting. Step four, ha, start having worldview conversations. And this is not about you telling them necessarily what you think, but about them telling you. What do you think about, I mean, man, that was just messed up, wasn't it, in New York when they just passed that law allowing abortion all the way up to, like, basically the kid is born. I just messed up. What do you think about that? Man, that conviction of Cardinal Pell, oh, just makes me angry, right? Like, think about what they did. And what do you think about that? Let's just get them to start sharing how they see the world, what they think is going on. Jordan Peterson, man, you ever read that guy's stuff? You're watching his YouTube videos? People are saying some really crazy stuff about him. Do you like, you ever heard about him? Of course, you've got to know the person a little bit to know what they're kind of going to be able to respond to, right? This is where you've got a friendship with them. So then step five, and this is all part of Engage still, where you can start sharing things from the Bible's point of view. Hopefully over time, as you ask them for their worldview, you will begin to get opportunities to share yours. Yeah, well, the Bible has to say this about it. Whether it's about parenting or relationships or justice or life and death, whatever it is, be thoughtful about it. This isn't an opportunity to just pull out your whole systematic theology of the doctrine of the incarnation and boof, God became man. We begin at Genesis chapter 1. And it's like, no, but just being thoughtful about it, sharing in a way that, you remember that saying, puts a stone in their shoe? In a little way, it's going to bug them. And just go, really? You think that? That's... Different, strange, bad, good, unusual, doesn't really matter. As long as it bugs them, you come back for more. I, I intend, I, I have the full intention of doing this, and I hope I can do it soon, on producing a, a little series of really short videos with a one-minute kind of biblical answer or biblical view to a whole bunch of common topics. I, I thoroughly intend to do that. I've only intended to do it for two months so far, so I've still got time, I feel. But uh, keep an eye on our Facebook group. In the not-too-distant future, we'll hopefully have those. Just for those of us who feel like, I wouldn't know what to say. I wouldn't have the foggiest idea how to say, well, what does the Bible say about this topic? What does Jesus think about it? At least just by way of a primer. Somebody asked me again in a couple of weeks' time, if anyone's good at making videos and has time, that will make it much easier. I just have to come up with the content and someone else can make the videos. Anyway, if that's you, come and talk to me later. 
Uh, and Pat, you don't count because you're already really busy. All right, stage two. Stage two then, we've engaged with them. We've gotten to the point, you do count if you really want to, but if there's someone else as well, brilliant, right? We've gone to the point where we've shared with them, we've heard from them, uh, we, we've, all of this is still with a non-Christian, okay, somebody who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. From there we move on to evangelize. At some point, at some point, we have to tell this person the good news about what Jesus has done for them. Everything that we've spoken about so far is not really evangelism. Evangelism is the declaration of the good news. It's why it's a little dotted line, you'll see. The horizontal line is a dotted line because it's, it's not really a hard distinction between when you're engaging and when you're evangelizing. But at some point, you've built some really beautiful bridges, right? You, they, they, they're, they're fantastic. You've got this really deep relationship and you talk about really cool stuff with this person. At some point, you've got to cross that bridge. It's not enough just to have beautiful bridges. Otherwise, what's the point? You're not really loving them if you just keep the treasure bottled up. Beautiful bridges. Did you like that one? Engineering, they're just beautiful structures. They've got weight, great weight and they can bear... Anyway. So you've got to this point where you're talking about the Bible's view on matters. How do you go from there to, event, to sharing the gospel? Now, I think the easiest is to go off the back of one of those conversations. If you are talking, if, you, if you've got a real friendship and you're talking real stuff with them, the easiest is to go off the back of one of those conversations and say, hey, I remember we were talking about this thing the other day, and it made me reflect, I, I don't know if I've ever shared with you what it is that Christians are on about. Do you, do you want me just to tell you what it is that Christians are on about? Like, what's, what's at the heart of it? That's the easiest way, really. You don't, you don't need anything more from there. They may well say, oh, maybe not right now. That's okay. That's brilliant. Because you can come back tomorrow and say, what about now? <laughs> right. You could ask them, right, if you could explain what Christians believe to them. If they know what it is that Christians are on about. Either way, you kind of need to have a way of telling someone the gospel. Um, it get kind of awkward if you offer to tell them what Christians are on about and you don't know. <laughs> hey, you want me to tell you about Jesus? Yes. Uh, okay. Well, you know, i seen Black Books, the very first episode of Black Books, where the JWs come and knock on their door and they're like, we'd like to talk to you about Jesus. And the guy's like trying to avoid doing his tax. So he's like, yes, yes, come in, come in, tell me about Jesus. And they're just like, what, what? It's a trap. No. <laughs> And they walk inside and they're like, ooh, it's very nice here, indoors. <laughs> and they walk in and then the guy's like, okay, so tell me about our Lord and Saviour. And the two JWs, you're like, uh, to be perfectly honest, we've never gotten this far before, right? You're just like this awkward kind of, you need to be prepared. Whether it's something as simple as what Simon used to have, right, ABC, admit, believe, confess. Christians believe that if you admit that you're someone who's not done the right thing, and you believe that Jesus died in your place for it, and you commit yourself to him, then you're going to be saved for eternity. That's pretty easy, isn't it? I've told you in 30 seconds. And you've got to remember, ABC, it's not hard. Whether it's two ways to live. I really commend two ways to live for you. If you've done prepared to serve with Joe, the, the, the year with the rector, then you should know two ways to live, although maybe you've forgotten it by now. 
There's something about the discipline of memorising bits of the Bible. There's something about the discipline of drawing. Two Ways to Live has got this series of pictures that go with it. If you sit with someone and draw those pictures, it's amazingly powerful. Whatever it is, right, there's, there's bridge to life. There's, there's a whole bunch of different ways of doing it. Even if it's just, you remember one memory verse. John 3.16, you could make that your evangelist. What's, what, what, is, what are Christians on about? Well, Christians are on about what, you, what people know in John 3.16. God so loved the world, like he loved us who are his enemies, that he gave his only son, Jesus. So anyone who believes in him, you put your trust in him, you will have your reward. You won't die, but you'll have eternal life. That's what Christians are on about. Whatever it is. Now, if you get to there and you've had an opportunity to share that with them, the next step... I would suggest is to ask them if they want to spend some time working out if this is true. If this is something that they themselves want to get to know more in depth, right? People are surprisingly open to reading the Bible. It's a strange phenomenon. We think it's that they're not. That if you say to someone, hey, would you like to read the Bible with me? They're going to be like, you are a freak, go away. It's not true. A whole bunch of research has been done. That people are more open to someone saying, would you want to read the Bible with me? Than saying, do you want to come to church? Because church is weird and intimidating and different and full of people I don't know. Read the Bible, just you and me sitting down and checking out whatever this book has to say. We can do that. Do you want to read the Bible with me? It's a great way, to be honest, because you let God's Word do the work. You don't need to have the answers. You just read the Bible together and there it is. Now, of course, there is a final step to this stage too. To evangelize. At some point, you need to ask them if they'd like to become a follower of Jesus. At some point, there needs to be an invitation, a call on that person to say, we've been, we, man, we've been reading the Bible for six months now, and you know it. You know what it's all about. You know what the Bible has to say about God and about you and about salvation. Do you want to accept Jesus? Now, that's why it's a kind of a hard line, the vertical one. Because there is a moment in which somebody is not a Christian and then they give their life to Jesus and they become a Christian. There is a difference there. There is a moment. And so at that point, they have crossed from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness into Jesus' kingdom. They are now the baby. They are now the brand new Christian, that little plant, that little baby that needs caring, that little baby that really needs establishing. Establish is what they need. Establish. <laughs> if you're a gardener, right, you'll know what it's like. You get a little seedling, whatever it is, and you've got to plant it and care for it and tend it well and look after it. I'm a horrible gardener. I just poof, plonk me in and yeah, go. Right, but there's this period where the root has to take hold. Where you've got to water it, you've got to give it special attention to help it to finally flourish. The same for new Christians. They've got to be established in their new life and their new faith. I'd recommend as a first step, just help them find a good church. If they're local... There's a really good church in Ingleburn, highly recommend it, right? You should bring them here, uh, the bat, no, <coughs> us. And, uh, but if they're somewhere else, I mean, if it's at work, right, which we, we work all over the place, they might live in Whoop Whoop, there's no way they're going to come here. Come and ask us, and I, I can pretty much guarantee I can find you a good church within 20 minutes drive of anywhere in Sydney, and quite possibly I can put you in touch with a person in that church. Right, so that you can go to your mate and say, hey, I've got this other friend who's at this church, let's, let's, let's tee it up and, and we'll go and hook you up there. That's not hard to do. But as you establish them, you've got to help them uh, work out what it is 
the basics of the Christian life, right? Okay, so I'm a Christian. What do I do now? Well, what does it mean to pray each day, to read the Bible each day, to be generous with who you are and what you have? There's, there's likely issues that are going to come up about how to be godly, right? How do I tell my family that I've become a Christian? What do I need to deal with in my life? Alcohol, pornography, greed, lies, bad relationships, whatever it might be. You need to help them, you can work through it. But don't get afraid at that point when you say you need to help them work through it. Remember, how is it that we make disciples? The Word of God. So it doesn't change, just read the Bible with them. Keep doing that. Let the Word do the work. Don't think you have to become a counsellor or something in order to be able to do this. Okay, so the person has now been established in the Christian faith. And so then the final part is not on there. Yes, it is there. It is equip. Equipping. When a person really starts to understand that the Christian life is about serving rather than being served, that person needs to be equipped. And in some ways, I'd say that for many of you, this is where you're at. Some of you are still being established as baby Christians. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. If that's you, then please, can you hear what I've said tonight and come and know Jesus? Will you accept him? Will you accept him tonight? Come and we'll help establish you and help you grow as that baby little plant. If you need to be equipped... Well, again, it's a dotted line, right? It's not like there's this kind of moment at which you have now made it. You are now the mature Christian. You're done. Whee! No, you always keep growing. We always keep maturing. We always keep uh, being equipped and growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, here's just a few ways the more mature Christian needs discipling. Right? Mature Christians need to keep learning how to keep going as a Christian in the face of life's pains and struggles. Even how to cope with opposition. That's not something easy. Mature Christians need to learn how to deal with difficult situations or ongoing sin. Processing how to make adjustments perhaps to a new stage of life. Just think for a moment about growing as a person. What does a mature Christian do as a parent? You might have been a mature single Christian and then you got married and you've got to work out what does it look like to be a mature Christian in marriage. And then you have kids and you're like, what does it look like to be a mature Christian in kids? And then right on you go. There may be life skills you need to still work on. How to manage your finances in a godly way. How to love your wife, your husband better. And if this new disciple is really growing in maturity and wanting to serve God wholeheartedly, then there's always, always, always going to be new ministry skills that you can learn, that you can improve in, that we can help you with. Okay, those are the four broad stages. Now, I hope that's helpful. What I really want you to do is put flesh on this in the sense of, Make it about a person. Where is this person up to? Are they, are they not a Christian and they, they don't even know Christians, right? Such that I need to go and begin this whole engage process with them and I need to just begin to build a relationship? Are they somebody that I now have an established relationship with and I, I really just need to get on with it and share the gospel with them and call them to respond to Jesus? Do, do I know someone who's a baby Christian and I can get alongside them and go and read Colossians with them and help them just work out the Christian life? Do, am I going to disciple someone who's mature? I want you to put flesh on it. In fact, what I would love you to do is to cast your mind back four or five weeks, whatever it was, and those two names that you wrote down. The person that you are going to disciple and the person that you want to ask to disciple you. I want to remind you of those names so that you'll go back to the person to disciple you and ask them, please, can you disciple me? But even more so, so that the person that you want to disciple, off the back of tonight, you can have a little bit of a think. Where are they up to? such that you can work out what's the next step. 
right with the right motives, with the right manner, and breaking it down into these small steps, you'll be well on your way to being a useful tool in the hands of God. I think you'll start to find joy in this part of God's work. And I think that as we develop deep and abiding friendships that don't just, not just for this life, but for eternity, we will see God glorified all the more as his disciples make disciples of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you um, for Paul's example. Thank you for how uh, helpful that it was for us that he, he reflected upon the way in which he ministered and discipled the church in Thessalonica. Uh, make us like him, uh, with the right motivation, the desire to please you, with the right manner, as we uh, seek to be like mothers and fathers uh, in how we relate with each other. But Father, please would you move us to action, uh, to not leave tonight and forget your word and wander off back into life and ignore it all, but to know ourselves in our very identity, to be disciple makers. And Father, we ask that off the back of this, the beginning of a whole lot of relationships, a whole lot of people being saved and a whole lot of disciples being matured. We ask this, Father, for your glory, that your character might be displayed in us and in more and more people. In Jesus' name, Amen.